Thank you for downloading Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Purdue's North America. This special series is a curated collection of premium Tisha B'Av content from the Pardes archives. We hope it brings additional meaning to these solemn days. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Nine Days, Nine Podcasts. The name of the class is How to Restore Unity to a Fragmented World, Exploring the Inner Dimension of Loving One's Fellow as Oneself. Loving, there's always one exception for a Thank God, we always have room for one more. Loving one's fellow is oneself. And what I added to this is, we can do this. We can do this. These are not just informing the narrative type words. These are words of what I'm going to teach and share with you. Words of mamash, literal inspiration, that can take us from, I don't know what to do, to maybe... This is something I can do. Two, I'm going to do it. Now, this is not the one answer to the main problem of we're not doing anything different today than yesterday. It's just a suggestion. It's one option. Maybe it will resonate in some of you, all of you, a few of you. I don't know, but I hope it does. We can do this. This is the secret to engaging in this spiritual practice that is surprisingly doable, practical, and a must. What's the spiritual practice? Loving one's fellow as oneself. Now, as a means of introduction, before I distribute the handouts, I would just like to bring to your attention a well-known classic piece of Gomorrah in Masechet Yoma. In Masechet Yoma, it's on Daftet Amud Bet, Yoma 9b. There, the rabbis are discussing why the first temple was destroyed and why the second temple was destroyed. And maybe some of you have heard this. It will be a review for you. If you've not, you, um, this will be your first then. So they said, there are three reasons why the first temple was destroyed. There was the transgression of three mitzvot, lotaaseh, mitzvot that prohibit behavior, not taboos. One is idol worship, one is illicit sexual relations, and one is bloodshed. In Hebrew, it's avodazora. Gilui Ariot and Shikuchut Damim. Right, so those were three very serious lotaaseh, prohibitive commandments that the Jewish nation as a whole were guilty of, and therefore the temple was destroyed. Seventy years later, we repaired, we did the tikkun, we did the healing, we in Galut, in Babel, which is now Iraq, seventy years later we were able to come back and build the second temple. In the same section in the Gomorrah, the rabbis then ask, why was the second temple destroyed? Why was the second temple destroyed? Now, the second temple was destroyed in 70 CE. It's now 2017. So that's a long time ago. And the rabbis give the answer because of sinat chinam, hatred that is either senseless, baseless, it creates no profit, it's for free, it's a life lacking, it's a, it's a practice lacking love and equanimity, mental calmness. So my question that I have every Tisha B'Av for the past 40-some-odd Tisha B'Avs that I've been engaging in recognizing Tisha B'Av is why did it take only 70 years to do the tikkun, to do the tshuva, to do the healing? 70 years that healed the breakage 
that was caused from violating three very serious mitzvot. I'm not sure if everyone's aware, but these are the only three mitzvot that one is not allowed to transgress in order to save one's life. All the other 610 mitzvot, we are commanded, not that we're allowed, we're commanded to save our lives if we have to, by, by transgressing them. It's called pikuach nefesh, saving a life. These three that caused the destruction of the first temple are the three cardinal mitzvot where one must accept death rather than violate. And it only took us 70 years. Now, there were people who were exiled as children with Jeremiah into, in, after the first temple that came back as adults. And because of Sinat Chinam, it's already been close to 2,000 years. So my question is, why? What is really going on? What is really going on? Clearly, clearly, whatever attempts have been made over the past 2,000 years in rectifying the blemish, the hurt, the breakings, the pain, the separation, the disconnects that Sinat Chinam cause have not worked. They're not working. Now, I'm not, I'm not a rabbah. I'm not a rav, I'm not a rabbi, I'm not going to say, therefore, we should not be observing Tisha B'Av the way the rabbis prescribe us to. I'm not even going near that. What I'm saying is, we need to do something else. If we're going to do at least that and nothing more, it's not working. That I will say, and you can quote me on that. So whatever is the is that we've been doing, and I've been doing it for over 40 years, it's not working. Now, anyone who's in business or anyone who is not in business but knows of business, people in business, knows that after a while, if you're investing and investing and investing, and you're not creating a profit, you need to do a din v'cheshvon. You need to take an account and say, do I close the business? Do I change the business? Do I, what, what is going on here? Well, this is 2,000 years. Isn't it time, Hebra, that we take stock and say, something's not working. This is unacceptable. I don't like that it's Tisha B'Av the way it is right now. I really, really don't. And I've sat on the floor, I've sat on chairs, I've heard Eicha all over the world, many times in Yerushalayim. It's all, it's just not working. It may be part of what will work. What I hope to share, what I'm going to share with you now is an additional part that may be missing in our lives. So Perak Lamed Bet, chapter 32 in the book Tanya, which is what we're going to explore today, a section of it. The book Tanya was written by Rabbi Shmir Zalman of La'adi, later became known as the first Lubavitcher Chabad Rebbe. He published the book in 1796 in Russia, not knowing he would be the founder and leader of what has become known as Chabad. And he deals with several chapters before chapter 32, chapter 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, that addresses the spiritual state of what's called Tintum Halev. Tintum Halev is Tintum Halev is a dullness of the heart. Le tamtam is to dull. It's like when a person is stone-like. They're insensitive to their own feelings. They don't feel, one does not feel a love or awe of God. Ahavat Hashem and Yerat Shemayim. There's a blockage. So in several of these chapters preceding chapter 32, 
the Baal HaTanya, also known in the circles of Chabad as the Alta Rebbe, the old rabbi, old here as a term of endearment, in Hebrew, HaRebbe HaZakein, informs us as to different spiritual practices to knock down this wall so we can become more vulnerable in modern English, to use that phrase, more open, more instead of lev timtum, lev patuach, moving to an open heart. Now, this chapter 32, I need to spend a few minutes before I distribute the text, because the very beginning of the text picks up and says, in light of what was just said. So what was in light of what was just said, meaning in the previous chapter, that when physicality, when we misprioritize physicality, when our body and everything that extends out into the physical world <clears throat> becomes top priority and our spirituality becomes second to that, the body and everything physical around us becomes putrid. Have you ever had, for example, you've wanted to eat something, and <clears throat> it's, a, it's a special either dessert or a special dinner, and you cook it and you anticipate it, and it could be for Shabbat or for a Chag or for a Salah Simcha, and you're eating it and you're eating it, and then you begin to realize you're eating too much. You're eating too much, and it no longer tastes good. It no longer, actually, it becomes disgusting. And that's, that's the danger of overeating. So when we overeat in the world of physicality, the Balatanya is telling us we're causing, instead of moving from Tintum Alev to Pitichat Alev, from a dullness to an opening, we're building up more and more and more of a dullness. It's a very important part. He doesn't mean to imply, as some people may think when they open up the, the chapter 32, that we're supposed to believe that our bodies are disgusting and that physicality is bad. If anything, Judaism extols the virtues of using the physical world, of honoring our bodies. We're not allowed to hurt ourselves because the body is holy. However, when it remains number two, when it, re when it becomes number one, when we misprioritize, when we misprioritize and there's an overindulgence, then the physical becomes ugly, putrid, actually harmful, and that becomes a source of self-hate. Sinat chinam. Now, when the rabbi said in Masachet Yoma that sinat chinam is the reason for the destruction of the second temple, let's not all jump to the conclusion, oh, we hated each other. Perhaps it starts within ourselves. If the mitzvah that we were transgressing is you shall love your fellow as you, meaning it's not only a commandment, but it's a prescription that the way you will love your fellow is the way you love yourself, then the way you hate your fellow, we can learn in using Talmudic logic, then the way you hate your fellow is the way you hate yourself. And that really is the problem, according to the Balatanya in this chapter. So we need to move out of, we need to move out of this self-hatred where we live in a space of scarcity, of finitude. And actually, I just skipped over one part of my notes, um, and then I'll distribute the, um, the handout. What really parak Lamed Bet, and Lamed Bet in Hebrew spells out the word heart, 
In Gematria, this is 30 and this is 2. The Lamed is 30, the Bet is 2, so it's chapter 32. So it's really the heart of the book, Tanya. <clears throat> there are 53 chapters in the book. This is the heart. <clears throat> of course, I didn't have my, all my water this morning. So, <clears throat> so what he's suggesting, what he's teaching is we need to develop, we need to really appreciate that there has to be an alternative to how we're living our lives. Because this is the answer to how we're living our lives. So instead of a behavior change where we all think, oh, I have to force myself to love people, starting today, now that it's Tisha B'Av, I'm going to go out and love everybody. And then two days later, someone knocks us in the wrong way in the shuk, and that all, right, then it's Tisha B'Av all over again. Well, instead of a behavior change, what the Balatanya is suggesting is a being change. How to be differently, not how to behave differently. Instead of a doing change, it's a way of thinking change. It's living instead in a space of scarcity. It's living in a space of abundance. Think about that. Instead of living in the space of the finite, which is the body and the physical world, it's living in the space of the infinite. So instead of I can't, I won't, I shouldn't, what if, it's I can, I must, and I will. So what is needed is really a paradigm shift, a shift of a consciousness. That's what's going to change today. So we won't perhaps, God forbid, have to ask this question tomorrow. So therefore, when we begin the chapter, and he sums up in about four words, in light of what I just taught you in the previous chapter, try not to be too reactive to the harshness of it. It's in light of, not that the body, again, not that the body in physicality is despicable, despicable, but an overindulgence. And are you with me on that? Is there anyone who doesn't get that? That's an important point, because Judaism really does value the physicality and the body and living in the physical world, as I mentioned. It's when it's overindulged, when it becomes more important than it really is. So, if you would kindly take one and pass. Are you talking about like commercialism and materialism? I'm talking materialism, I'm talking consumption, I'm talking a sense of I'm looking in my closet and some of the people in the room may understand this. I have 20 pairs of shoes and I feel I have nothing. Oh, I need a, you know, I have a magnet on my, on my it's, it's a joke, it's really a terrible joke. And I always want to throw it away, but it's a reminder of where many of us uh, come from. There's not a problem in the world a new pair of shoes can't solve. All right? And that's anything but, of course, the truth. That's anything but the truth. Because what happens is you get the new pair of shoes, and after six hours, after the Shabbat, after the Chag, after the Simcha, whatever it is, you feel empty again. Because we're going into the, it's like going into a fish store, a fish market to buy vegetables. There's nothing wrong with the fish, but that's not where you buy vegetables. So if I need a new pair of shoes, I go to a shoe store. But if I need fulfillment, if I need a sense of purpose, if I need a sense of how can I love myself? How can I reach deep inside and see the abundance inside of me? I don't go and buy a pair of shoes. 
And that's what happened. And when we do that, that's what's despicable and putrid and disgusting. And I don't mean it in a judgment. I mean it in the truest sense. It actually putrefies. It spoils. Okay. So, any questions till now? We're ready to dive right into the text. Now, I want to point out, if you look on the top, if you look where it says Tanya chapter 32, you see a little asterisk there. If you look at the very end, at the very, very end, regarding the text in English, and this is important for you to know as I read it, the words in italics are the original translation of the Hebrew text translated by Rabbi Nissen Mendel in 1962. Now, the words in regular non-italics are the commentary. There's a commentary on Tanya that was originally delivered in Yiddish in the 60s, then it was translated into Hebrew in the 70s, and then translated into English in the 80s. And that's called Lessons in Tanya by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg and his son Rabbi Levi Weinberg in 1987. So that's the difference between the italic words in, in English and the non-italic. Because you have to learn text with commentary, of course. You are, your, are the best commentary, though. Okay, here we go. Acting on the advice mentioned above, which is what? Liot gufo nibzevenim as where one is expected to view one's body with scorn and contempt. And again, please remember the context in which he was teaching that. Where the, the real joy, the joy is the joy of the soul alone. That's where real simcha can come from. What he's saying is, this is the straight and easy way. This is the straight path. It's the easy. Not that he's always looking to teach us how to take the easy way in life. But let's face it, 2,000 years is a long time to try it the hard way. He wants to lighten the load a little. And this was written in 1796. So it's over 200 years ago. He's saying, we can fulfill this mitzvah. Doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be a big person in the community, knowing a lot of Torah. You can be a person that's not as educated, not as spiritually sensitive. Everyone can come to fulfill this mitzvah. And this mitzvah is the answer to this. When we do that, then we will switch. We will create a healing, a tikkun. We will heal the breakage that was caused when the second temple was destroyed. He continues. Since the person's body now becomes despised and loathsome, really meaning what the overindulgence in the body can lead to becomes despised and loathsome. And concerning our spiritual part, our spiritual center, really, does any one of us here really know how great or not anyone else's soul is? 
Like I can see people, some people are taller, some people are shorter. Some people are thinner, some people are heavier. Some people are people of, of different, of whatever color of skin. You know, people of color. People, we're all people of color. Some people have wavy hair, straight hair, curly hair, no hair. So I can write down differences that I see with my physical sense, my chush of ru'iyah. But do I know about your souls? Do I even know about my soul? Do I really know who I am when it comes to my spiritual identity? So what he's saying here is, since I'm not focusing on the body, and since I really don't know what's really going on with everyone else's spiritual center, what does that do? Can anyone suggest what that does? What does it create? Dissonance. It creates dissonance. Can you... Speak to that. Like, um, the idea that essentially, as human beings, uh, we strive to cling to things that we feel we can affirm, when really we can't because we don't know. And so we constantly run away from that vulnerable aspect of, no, I know, I know, I know, instead of going, well, maybe I don't know. Okay, well, let's see what he says. That's very interesting. You said dissonance. Very interesting. Um, so I'll read the English since the, with a commentary. Since the, the person's body is despised and loathsome, he will not love himself on account of his body more than he loves his fellow. Like, I love that I have blue eyes. I'll admit it. All right? I love that I have blue eyes. But my gosh, if that's a reason for only loving people with blue eyes, I have a major, major problem. So it's, again, I want to re-emphasize, because many people, when they first learn this text, they, all they hear is, oh, I'm supposed to hate my body, I'm supposed to hate the physical world, it's supposed to be despicable, that's what this Rebbe says. And of course, I don't agree with the Rebbe. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, if, the, if my having blue eyes is secondary to something much more important, then it doesn't matter whether you have brown or blue eyes, to me. And it really doesn't, to be honest. And as far as the soul and spirit, the differences between one's own soul and that of one's fellow surely will not diminish the love between them because I don't even know the differences anyway. For who can know their, meaning the soul and spirit's greatness and excellence in their source and root, meaning in the living God? Who really knows? You know, we may express the soul in different ways, but we really don't know how many people are in this room? <clears throat> Boy, that could keep us busy. The rest, we should all live to be 120. If we spent the next 120 years together, we would not have each other figured out. Can you imagine if the door was locked for 120 years and the goal is to really get to know each other's soul? It's not going to happen. It can't happen. That's the beauty of it. So then he continues with these two reference points that the physical surely is not going to come in between us because I'm not going there. And the spiritual can't come between us because I really don't know. Therefore, anyway, we're not really that different spiritually. We're different in how we express our souls. But in terms of the real essence of our soul, and we all have the same parent. You know, it's just like siblings. The siblings are equal in that they have the same parent. 
We're all equal here. Equal. Our souls all come from the same Father in heaven. Avinu Shabbat Shalayim. When you're talking about all Jewish people, or are we talking about all people? He's teaching, good question, very, especially more today than 200 years ago in Ukraine, in Russia. He was talking to specifically a Jewish audience. A very specific, by the way, type of Jewish audience. Because the people who... The book Tanya is a compilation of 20 years of mentorship. He mentored people who, who really came to him and said, how do I live in the physical world and on the physical, and, but also touch the spiritual? So these were the people who he spoke to. I would like to think I use it in how I go out into the world when I see another human being, that every human being is created but Salam Elohim in the image of God. I've never learned that any one particular per person is created more or less or owns that. So while he, to, to, be, to be bluntly honest, he's speaking to a, not only a Jewish, strictly Jewish group, but within the Jewish group, a specific type of Jewish personality. People who really want to uh, move beyond this into the more spiritual sense. So you think the quality and the... the Makeup of a Jewish neshama is the same as. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't even know everything about my soul. And you know, the older I get, after each tisha b'av, I'm more easily able to say, and I, and it's the truth. I don't know. Like if you would have asked me this 30, 40 years ago when I first started learning Tanya, I was, oh yes, definitely. I don't know. Actually, in my journey, and maybe I would consider considering in your journeys, it's not really that important. What's important is we get to know our own soul more and more and believe that there's something that connects us to everybody else that's, that's not qualitatively different. That's the important teaching here. You know, in the next world, wherever the next world will be, what it's like, well, all these questions will be answered. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But that shouldn't stop us. So he says here, We all have the same father. We're all called brothers and sisters, by extension. From the point of view of our source, of where we come from, we really all are brothers and sisters. Like one of my rabbis, may he rest in peace, Rabbi Shlomo Kavach, would always say, holy brothers, holy sisters. And people would say, why do you call us holy brothers and holy sisters? We never heard a rabbi call us that. He said, well, because you are. That's why. Like, you are. I mean, he also learned Tanya, and he was teaching in the 70s, 60s, 70s and 1980s. But this is what the Balatanya is saying. We are literally, literally brothers from the point of view of our souls. And in terms of the bodies, rockets, the bodies that are different, the different body weights, the diff again, height, weight, appearance, that's what's different. But that's not who we truly are. So then on the next page, we have rather a lengthy, a lengthy commentary. And I would like to spend a few minutes on this commentary. All right, good. How then can one claim that one's soul is superior to one's fellow? We really can't. So not only can I not say, well, because I have blue eyes, I'm better than everyone with brown eyes, because I'm not even going in that direction, 
But I can't even say, well, because I am more spiritual, and I really know my soul, and I'm living in Yerushalayim, and I get to daven in these amazing places and learn Torah and teach in these amazing places, I'm better than most people that I meet. I can't even say that. See what he's doing? He's removing all arguments for separation, for disconnects. It really doesn't matter which way you go. He's arguing both points. And then he says, furthermore, they're actually equal, that's the translation, and not only equal, yet separate, you know, because we are separate in terms of our bodies, but furthermore, we all have one source. And within the source, they all compromise one entity. I mean, just think of your family systems. You know, with all the brothers and sisters and combinations thereof, the one thing you equally share in common with your siblings, the most important thing that defines why you're brothers and sisters, is you have the same parent or parents. It is on, so it is on this account of this common root in the one God that all of Israel are called brothers in the full sense of the word. And then the, Rabbi Weinberg brings down a beautiful note from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that not only figuratively, but it's under footnote number two, uh, you could look at the end, that in Bereshit, Yud Gimel Chet, in Genesis, 18th chapter, the eighth verse, where it says Avram is having this argument with, well, Avram's, the people who are taking care of his flock, are arguing with the shepherds of Lot's flock. So there's this verse where Avram, this is even before he's called Avraham, Avram Avram says to Lot, Let there not be any like any disputes or arguments between us. For we are brothers. Now the Rebbe brings down and he quotes the Rashi. They were not brothers. Avram, Avram. Abraham and Lot were not brothers, but yet he's saying in the Pasuk were brothers. So he brings down the Rashi, and the Rashi says, Domin panim or krovim. It can mean we're really relatives, or we look alike in our appearance. So what the, so what the commentary of Weinberg is saying, based on the Rebbe bringing down the Rashi on that verse, that when the Balatanya says we're all brothers, it's not like when Abraham was speaking to Lot. It's not that we all have some similarities. We're in like we're like distant cousins. No. No, he says it's not figuratively in the sense of relatives or similar in appearance and the like. This explains Hebra, how it is at all possible to demand that one love one's fellow as one loves oneself. Now, going back to that commandment, I said before it's also a prescription, but it also is a commandment. It's not only a commandment, it's a prescription. But it's not only a prescription, it's a commandment. So the way one, the, we are commanded to love one's fellow as oneself. Well, have you ever tried to love one's fellow? Has anyone in the room here ever tried to love one's fellow? Sure. Yeah, I think many of us have. It's really hard. It's really hard. It's very difficult. Well, the Balatanya assumes that it's hard. And he addresses that. This explains how it is, it is at all possible to demand that one love one's fellow as one loves oneself. Self-love is innate. It's natural to the person. Love for one's fellow is not. 
How can a generated love match a natural love? According to the principle stated here, this is readily understood. Because a Jew need not create a love for another. I don't have to try to love all of you. Actually, if I try to love all of you, I'm not really following the commandment, nor the prescription. The love is an inborn characteristic of one's soul. And on account of its root in godliness, which is common to all souls, it is as natural as the love between brothers. And I know we all come from different family systems. Not all of us like our brothers and sisters. But we all love them. And they all love us. We can't help it. We just can't help ourselves. Because they're extensions of ourself. So the love we have for ourself. Now, the self, what is the self? Again, is the self that I have blue eyes? Or is there something else going on with the self? So he continues. Therefore, there can be no true love and fraternity between those who regard their bodies as primary and their souls secondary. That equanimity, that shalva, that, that sense of, of real true connection will never come to be, he's saying, if my body is more important than my soul. Rather, everything depends. It's a beautiful expression. The expression, it's, only, it's a love based on an external factor. It literally means it's dependent on something in the moment, on something. So, for example, let's say I really appreciate someone who's a, uh, a cardiologist, and the person transplants hearts and saves lives. So I could really love this person. It's not for something that's trite, something of value. And I really love this person. Wow, he's committing his career to saving lives. He's devoting his career to saving lives. Let's say, God forbid, the person has a car accident. He's in a car accident. And it prevents him as a result from ever performing surgery. So he no longer can save lives the way he used to. If my, what he's saying here, what the Balatani is suggesting, if my love is based on something that depends on something external, as good as that external factor can be, what will happen? I no longer love him? I can't love you anymore because the whole reason I loved you was something external to your essence. Yes, you were saving lives. Yes, you were an amazing heart surgeon. But that's external to you. That's not your essence. So that's the reason. Not only I love you because I, like, I love your car, or I love you because I love um, your status in the community. I mean, we know that people love each other for that also. But that's not, according to this, real love. So the commentary says as follows. Since the body separates us from each other, whereas the soul is that which binds us together, the greater value one places on one's body at the expense of one's soul, the more conscious he or she is of the differences between himself and one's fellow. Do you understand that? It's a matter of how you prioritize. When number one becomes number two, and number two, actually number two becomes number one, which is then pushed down to number two, that's where the problem lies. 
These differences require, therefore, that he create a love for one's fellow, and instead above, a created love can never equal a natural innate love. It can't stand to it. It can't stand the, 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 the test of time, the challenges of time. Therefore, love between people who consider their bodies as primarily important must be only a love based on an external factor. In which case, the love is either limited to the importance of the motivating factor, like the brain surgeon or the, the heart surgeon, or destined to endure only as long as that factor is valid. Point in case, again. So, is everyone with the material up till now? You're with me now. Any questions? Well, I think it's a question, but very much in the beginning, I wrote something, what if there is no self-love? And as you're talking, I'm thinking about a child who clearly loves themselves, and at a certain point, if challenged by society, and then we have to find ourselves again. I mean, there's also me speaking from my own personal experience. About physicality, about body, about whatever. I'm going to limit it to that for right now for me. Um, so I think that that's also part of the challenge. Yeah, well, that is the challenge. That is the challenge. It's, the not, it's not just loving someone else as you love yourself, but recognizing that that may be lost. So this the reason this chapter came after chapter 31, 30, and 29 is he's addressing this spiritual problem of being insensitive, of being like stone-hearted. And how do you move from a closed heart to an open heart? When you look in the mirror, who do you see? What do you see? If all you see is a body looking back at you, he's saying you're going to remain there. And then is impossible. So when this Rebbe says, because we are today just as we were yesterday, it's we're looking into the mirror the same way. It's now to look into the mirror spiritually, through a spiritual lens. Say, wow, I'm looking beyond my face, beyond my hair, beyond my nose, and I'm beginning to touch. I'm beginning to embrace. I'm beginning to encounter, even before embracing, a piece of my soul. That's a piece of God inside of me. That's where self-love comes from. Because through the test of time, nothing can compromise the integrity of that. Okay. Nothing. So when we're asked, when we're told by God and commanded by God, you shall love your fellow as yourself. And by the way, it's also very important to know that whenever God has given us a commandment, he's empowered in the commandment with us the capacity to fulfill it. So he's never given us a commandment that is impossible to fulfill. It's part of our belief, part of our trust. So if God's telling me I can do this, part of my trust is, well, I really can. So the switch is not when I go out into the streets and I get on an autobus egged and I start treating everybody nicer. No, it's I start looking into the mirror and seeing a different part of Yiska. I see a different, it's, and, and again, the body is, look, I like wearing nice clothes. I like, you know, eating in nice restaurants and having nice Shabbat dinners and, and traveling. All those niceties in life are wonderful, but they're number two. Right. That's it. That's yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. So it's how do we, yeah. Here's a spot here. I'm going to ask that. Please. Not a short order here. Like, it's not a short. 
so like speaking personally, because why not, um, like I've actually had periods of my life and exercises where I look in the mirror and really, really connect to my neshama, and it's probably some of the most profound moments that I have a connection with Hashem in my, in my life. But what happens? I have that profound self-love, but then life happens. Life, meaning emotions, meaning, you know, talk about external things, situations, like all, so it's one thing to look in the mirror and be in that own loving space, but it's another thing to, to bring that out that's what the next piece of the text is all about. Be because you're right, we do, and the mirror, by the way, is not only the physical mirror. I mean, my, my mirror that I look into every day is meditation. So, so before I came to this class, you know, before I came to Bardas this morning, I sat by myself and I really went in. It was really important that I just remained open to seeing if I can touch that piece of me that I know, that I really believe is not only there, but is the reason I can connect with all of you in this room, even though I don't even know most of you, I already sense I'm connecting with all of you because of that. So looking into the mirror is not only the mirror in the bathroom, it's also the mirror inwardly when we sit with ourselves, and it's something that a lot of us are not doing enough of, so more of us need to do more of it, where we sit with ourselves every day. I'm not saying to go into a deep meditation for 20 minutes every day, even if it's two minutes. Two, three minutes, give yourselves time to reconnect with who you really are. And it's not even the loving part of you. It's the soul part of you that you will love because you love God. See, loving God and loving self and loving each other all become, as we'll see now, all engaged in one space. Okay? I have a little problem. I have, a, I have a big problem. Go ahead. Let's, let's see if we can solve it. Loving my fellow man. I respect my fellow man. I try and be courteous to my fellow man. I don't necessarily love him. Exactly. You're right. You, you know, you reminded me of a student I had several years ago at the conservative yeshiva. We were learning this chapter. And she basically said, a little more, she was a little bit stronger than what you said. She said, you know, there were some people in the world, they're, they're outright despicable. <laughs> They're disgusting. They're mean. How am I supposed to love them? That's your your description of them. Not necessarily true. Oh, that was that's how she was vocal. Yeah. So I said to her, as I will say to you, the commandment is not to like the person. Liking is different than loving. And I have some Israelis in the room who could vouch for this. That liking is not even a strong word in Hebrew. Nachon. Mamash, we don't in So I may like you be, because we have common values. I may like you because we have common interests. But the commandment is, I am commanded to love you. But what does the love mean? And that's the mis that's the misunderstanding. Love comes from the word lahav, which means in Aramaic to give. The way I want to give to my own spiritual center, actually, what's the word I'm looking for? Okay, inspires me, inspires me to give out to my fellow human being. Mm -hmm. Love is giving. Love is compassion. Love is giving the benefit of the doubt. Love is equanimity. Love is really moving. It's this kind of energy of moving out after one discovers this inside. I may not like you. 
I may, God forbid, I'm not talking to you, you, but I may not like this particular person. That doesn't matter. That person is created equally in the, in the image of God as I am. Not more and not less. Look, I have, I'll be very honest, I have an issue, as some of you who know me better, I have some stuff going on with my sisters. As many of us in this room have stuff going on with your brothers and sisters. But when, but when the love, the love is there. The love is there. Do I like? Not always. Am I always liked? Not always. But love is different. Judaism, how Judaism, how Torah defines love is not how Hollywood defines love. The Hollywood version of love, and I don't mean to diminish it, because believe me, I think Gone with the Wind is one of the best movies ever produced in the world, and I cry every time I watch it, all right? But that's more of a romantic liking, of a closeness of liking, of attaching. This is very different. We cannot love the image in who we've been created and hate human beings. Actually, it was the Balatanya who asked, if I had to focus on loving God or loving people, what do you recommend I love more? He said, oh, people. Because you can think you're loving God and say in the name of loving God. It's like that bumper sticker I once saw many years ago. It's not God I'm afraid of, it's the people who say they love him. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, people who say they love God can do really nasty things. So the Balatanya, the author of it said, don't worry about loving God. You love each other. Then you love God. So to your point, yes, it's a small problem. It's a big problem. The problem is we don't define love according to how the mystics, according to how Kabbalah, according to how traditional Jewish thought defines love. Does that help answer a little, perhaps? Yeah. Look, you never know who's sitting next to you or in front of you or in back of you, right? You never really know. <laughs> right. Looks to me like a road with sort of road bumps, what he's describing here, because there are a lot of ifs. I heard the ifs coming up in the room. Yeah. What if I can see my neshama and then life happens? Uh, what if there's a very damaged person who's been damaged by life and finds it hard to love themselves, how are they going to go out and love other people? So I think there's a course with all sorts of road bumps to overcome yes. until you get there. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of healing to be done along this mm. path. A lot of healing. Mm. A lot of healing. A lot of giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Just for clarity. Uh, for myself, I've really realized that when it comes to that aspect of love, I've noticed that it comes very much for me uh, personally from the grasp of how fragile uh, we as humanity are, and yet look at how much we do throughout the course of the day. Every inhalation. You realize every inhalation for somebody right now, as I'm speaking, that's their last inhalation in their life. Every inhalation is a decision that God is giving us one more breath. That is fragile. So when you're talking about seeing into yourself, into your soul, it really becomes, I mean, for example, I mean, even in terms of fragility, um, I, 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 don't, I don't want to take up too much time, but I've even written at some points that maybe it's good, maybe it's really good to question whether God really exists or not, because there is a real fragility there. 
Yeah, it is good. It is good. God can handle being questioned. Yeah, we can question God all we want. As long as we know, we won't always get the answer. There we go. Okay, so now, um, so the bottom of this page, you see what it says, up to now, the Altar Rebbe? That's where we'll pick up. Up to now, the Altar Rebbe has discussed the mitzvah of loving one's fellow on its own merits. Now, what he's going to say now, Victoria and to everyone else, this will lead into a way of life. This becomes a way of life, a way of being. That's why I said earlier, it's not so much we have to change behavior, we have to change being. He now proceeds to discuss the value of this mitzvah as the basis for all the commandments. We have 613 commandments. He's now saying this one commandment becomes the yesod, the foundation for all the mitzvot, thereby elucidating yet further the importance of rejoicing with the joy of the soul alone. Which he started, that was in his very first sentence, that the simchat of the nefesh is the true simcha. There are 613 opportunities to show how much you love yourself, to show how much you identify you with godliness. Now the Talmud relates that it was Hillel, the elder, who authored the well-known statement that Ahavat Yisrael, the love of one's fellow, is the basis of the entire Torah. For Hillel had been approached by a Gentile who declared that he wished to convert to Judaism, but only if Hillel would teach him the entire Torah while he stood on one foot, al regal achat. And hence we have that expression, oh, can you tell me al regal achat? <laughs> Whenever I get a question like that, it's like, watch out. <laughs> you just say what Hillel said, everything else is commentary, go study it. Right? So he said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole Torah, the rest is but commentary. So now, there's a problem, though, at least with Rabbi Weinberg, as he's providing this commentary on the Tanya. An obvious difficulty presents itself. All mitzvot fall into either two categories. Ben adam l'chavero, ben adam l'makom. So we have mitzvot that govern how we engage with each other, and then mitzvot that govern how we engage in our relationship with God. Now, it's readily understood how all the mitzvot of the former category, the mitzvot ben adam l'chavero, may be motivated by one's love of one's fellow. Do you understand that? I mean, that's logical? That if you fulfill that mitzvah of loving one's fellow, you're more likely to be able to follow all the mitzvot that govern our behavior with each other as human beings. Like in business, in relationships, all the mitzvot between a person and a person. But how can this love motivate one to fulfill any of the mitzvot belonging to the latter category? For example, Shabbat. For example, keeping kashrut. That's between me and God. So how does how does that inform me of my own personal narrative with all the commandments between me and God? So the author of this answer follows from this previously stated principle that the essence of Ahabat Yisrael and this to the gentleman who's sitting next, next to Nita. What is your name? Phil. Phil. This hopefully will be part of an answer for you that the essence of Ahavat Yisrael is not love. It's not trying to force a love. It's giving priority to one's soul rather than to one's body. And that's what we are doing today that we have done yesterday and the day before and for the past 2,000 years. And that's why... However, one understands Mashiach, this sense of redemption, has not occurred. 
This indeed is the basis of the entire Torah, meaning giving priority to one's soul. Now the Balatanya continues back into the text in Tanya. And then he quotes in Hebrew, the, he explains what Hillel said. He quotes the piece from Masechet um, Shabbat, Lamed Aleph Aleph, page 31, side A, when Hillel said to the Gentile, this is the basis of the whole Torah. And this is what the Balatanya says. Ki yisod v'shorish kol ha-Torah Now, Victoria and everyone else, this will answer your question. This is a major, major, what I'm going to share with you now, this is a major contribution that Chabad Hasidut has given the Jewish world. You know, every group of Jewish people that has produced a literature from the medieval times to the Talmudic times, Rishonim, Achonim, here Ba'aretz, Chutz La'aretz, we all give something unique. This is what I'm going to read now, is one of the unique contributions from the Balatanya. To be a Jew, to be living your Judaism, to be fulfilling this mitzvah, the reason why it so permeates all the other 612 mitzvot is because in order to fulfill our mandate, we need to prioritize ourselves as spiritual beings, as extensions and expressions of godliness. Why? Because this is what we are commanded to do. Because our whole being in this physical world is to elevate and elevate and elevate. We take everything, this marker, something as mundane, as, as inanimate, as a marker. I'm able to write a piece of Torah teaching on a board. That's taking this marker instead of writing, God forbid, hate language that brings the world down, what I can use this marker for can bring the world up. And that's elevating spirituality over physicality through the use of physicality. That's the chidush. Look, I could have, we could all just stay as angels and this whole thing would not have had to happen. Right? They don't need to use physicality. But by being here, God has given us the koach, the potential and the power. Koach means both potential and power to take something as meaningless, so it seems, as a marker. And with that, I can write on the board a piece of God's wisdom. I mean, that's amazing. At the same time that I'm doing that, that I'm elevating, at the very same time, I'm bringing light of the Torah down into the world. I'm bringing more and more light of the one to become in the one, the one nation with the one God. And that phrase in Hebrew, is found in the Zohar, in the prayer we say every Friday night in Kabbalat Shabbat before Baruch Hu, for Nusach Svar and Nusach Mizrahi and Nusach Arizal, um, Kagavna. It begins with Kagavna. And it talks about becoming bringing into the world the one, meaning the presence of the one God, into the one nation. That's, Victoria and everyone else, hopefully an answer to your question. It's not just a matter of looking into our spiritual mirror once a day for two minutes and going out into life and not knowing what to do. It's, it's no. It's I look into that mirror for two minutes and that gives me the reason to go out into the world. 
Because when I go out into the world, I'm doing one of two things. I'm either elevating or I'm bringing down. And actually, I'm probably doing both at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. This is beautiful flow. It's really a flow of energies. So I, I become the conduit. Each one of you here is a conduit for channeling more light into the world. You take that light, you use it to then elevate more of the mundaneness. Think about that. It's a, it becomes a way of being, as I said earlier. That's what we need to change. That's what we have not been doing for 2,000 years, which is why I said earlier, our basic observance, oh good, I have a few more minutes. Our basic observance of Tisha B'Av is not working because there's no change of a consciousness. There's no change of a way of being. So what do we do? We physically sit on the floor. We physically, many of us, you know, don't say hello to each other in the morning because when you go into a mortar's house, you're not supposed to say hello. So we adopt all these outward, outer customs. But inwardly, what's going on inwardly? You know, Tuesday's the same as yesterday, which will be the same as tomorrow. Only tomorrow I can have a cup of coffee before I teach, rather than today not. I'm not doing so bad without my coffee. (laughs) Just thought about that. I didn't have coffee today. All right. Now, he says here in English, we'll jump down to the bottom, for the basis and root purpose of the entire Torah. This is the entire Torah, Hebra, spiritually. Of course, he's coming from the point of view of spiritual Judaism, of redemptive Torah, is to elevate and exalt the soul high above the body. So he's ending in a much sweeter way than he began, but it really is the same. It's exalting the soul high above the body to God, the root and source of all the worlds, and to draw, and to draw at the same time down the infinite light of Ein Sof, the infinite, into the community of Israel, as will will be explained further. He does that in chapter, I believe, um, 41. Yeah, in another chapter in time meaning into the fountainhead of the souls of all Israel, so that the one God will reside within the one Israel, and then by extension the rest of the world. The rest of the world. But only insofar as they are mu'uchadim, as they are united and one. Now we go back to the Sinat Chinam. Now we go back to the Hafrodot. This is not happening. And then what he does is he concludes by saying... This When there's a separation of the souls, Peirut is a very harsh, it's a very difficult spiritual space to be in. Hafrodot are all the disconnects that are right now happening. Hey, look, you know, we're, we're complex people. There's a lot going on with each one of us. There's a lot of moving parts here. But one thing is for sure, Hafrodot do not work for us. Hafrodot means when I'm separate from you. I feel separate from you. I feel either better than you or at times even feel less than you. So better, less, it's this judgmental, it's this space of scarcity, it's the space of finitude. You know, there's only enough to go around and the more I get, the less for you, which means the more you get, the less for me. So I'm going to make sure to get more than you. That way of thinking, that survival behavior, that's fear-based behavior. That's not prioritizing the soul over the body behavior. There's enough here, Hebra, for all of us and then some. Because we're dealing with the infinite. There's a piece of each one of you that's infinite. If that's not worth loving yourself for, 
According to the Balatanya, you'll never love yourself. That is the source of love. That will hold me through everything. That's the equanimity. That's the shalva. That's the ahava. And he says, God forbid, God does not dwell in an imperfect, fragmented place. In Hebrew, it says, it's from the Zohar, God will not dwell. You know, it's like, and I think you could all relate to this, those who are parents, those who have parents, or are grandparents, you know, like when your children, or when you were children, and you were fighting with your siblings, what was one reaction? It was a common reaction many times with the parent. You know what? All of you are driving me crazy. I don't want to look at any of you. All of you take your time out. It's like the mother and the father doesn't want to be in the middle of all that. Like, you know, I'm not going to start taking sides. I love you. are my children. You're my children. And right now, this is so hurtful to me that my kids are fighting with each other. I cannot be in the same room with you. Now, of course, God exists. 24-7, wherever we are. But God's presence, as it is revealed, is never revealed when there's hafredot. The Zohar promises us that. And the Zohar is the book of unity, of unifications. The whole Zohar talks about the different aspects of God unifying together, us being one of them. So it's, 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 fairly, it's stated fairly pshater, that God will not dwell in a fragmented place. So that's why when Jews are fighting with each other, when there's sinat chinam, when there's a lack of love and that lack of shalva, that's why we have trouble feeling God's presence. Because there isn't God's presence there. There's God's existence, but not God's felt presence. Just like the kids can feel their parents in their lives, but not their presence. And I remember times, not that often, I had to say to my kids, you know, you all need to take a time out. I'm not, I'm not going near you right now. I'm not a part of this. And for 2,000 years, God, in essence, is saying, I'm not a part of this. I want to be a part of this. I want to be, dwell in my house again. And so you and the rest of you, meaning Amisul, and the rest of the world can really benefit. But you need to learn how to behave with each other. And in order to do that, you need to look at yourselves differently. You really need to see who you really are. You're extensions of me. So don't go and hate other people in my name. And then he concludes, and then I'll, there's a question in the back. Um, we say the final bracha in the Shemona Asrei, Barachenu Avinu Kulanu, what is it? Ke'echad. You know, it's the only bracha, Shlomo Kavach taught this, all the other brachot of the Amidah, could happen for one person, but not for the whole nation. But when we say, when we say at the end, like, bless us, our Father, all of us is one with the light of your countenance. If one of you in this room is not in that space, it's not going to happen. It won't happen. I can't pray for me to be in a world of peace without all of you in it. Because the word, word shalom doesn't really mean peace. Really mean completion. All right. So before we conclude, I just wanted to. Oh, there's a question in the back. Just a quick comment. And just to kind of tie your your comment on survival and uh, tishabav. You know, maybe the fact that we focus on survival so much is the same reason that it's all spicy. Yeah. And 
and instead of focusing on divine presence, they focus on their own fear and survival. And yeah, they came back traumatized. You know, ten of the twelve. You know, we're still in trauma. We're, we have been in trauma for two thousand years. And when you're in trauma, I'm not a trauma specialist, but I read a few articles that when a person's traumatized, their responses to whatever is going on is either under-exaggerated or over-exaggerated. Because you're not really in touch with the true you. Because you're busy surviving. You're busy running. Because you're in trauma. Well, when 10 of the 12 spies came back, they were traumatized. And what they did is they then traumatized the whole nation. And that's why God said, you're all traumatized. I want to give you my gift. I want to give you Eretz Yisrael. And you're crying like you're traumatized. You know what? I'll give you a reason to be traumatized. You know, we, we, and we've seen that, that Midrash, that it hurt God so much, so to speak, because God has to go so That's a whole other class. Uh, I want to I I end. We have just a few more minutes with a teaching. It's a very short teaching from a Rabbi Shmuel Weiss. <clears throat> I don't know him, but I read this online many, many years ago. He lives in Ranana, and he directs the outreach center there. And he said there's a deeper way of understanding Sinat Chinam. So Sinat Chinam, which we define Okay, Sinat Chinam we define Chinam is like for free. Like if you're giving someone like for free, it's Lechinam. So it's free hatred, meaning you don't have to do anything to get it. You just hate it. But he wanted to go deeper and probe what is really going on with Sinat Chinam. Why is this really such a problem for us? So he took it apart, and the word Chinam also means, it's a, it's a combination of Chain Shalahem. The Chain of a person, the Chain of a person is their charm, is their, is their beauty, is their inner uniqueness. It's what makes each one of us who we truly are as an extension of godliness. So what is chinat chinam? Is when I hate the chain of the other because the other is not the same as me. And the, the sad part of this, which is also the redemptive part of this, is the, the, the rufu'ah, the healing of this, is to see that you are the same as me. We don't have to be afraid of each other's chain. Each other's chain is how we express who we unique, uniquely are. But we're all created equally by the same creator in his heart, its image. So I want to bless all of us as we conclude this shiur on this Tisha B'Av. May this be the last shiur we ever have to learn to get. Well, there's another shiur. Unless Mashiach comes in, <laughs> maybe in 15 minutes. It could happen. It could happen. But really, let's make up our minds to really go inwardly and start looking at ourselves with a little bit more of our own pain, with a little bit more of our own love, to see who we really, really are. And then, when we go out into the world, it'll just extend itself naturally. We won't have to force ourselves to love each other as ourselves. Thank you again for listening to Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Produce North America. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.